Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Clinical Appraisal Podcast. This is a show where we explore the primary scientific literature in nursing and related health sciences. This is Season 2, Episode 13, and I'm your host, Ian Lane. Clinical appraisal is dedicated to exploring issues of measurement and methodology in nursing research and practice. If you like what I'm doing and have enjoyed the podcast so far, please rate and review the show on iTunes so that more people can access it. It really does make a difference in terms of people's ability to get the exposure to the podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com and visit my website at about.me slash Ian Lane. To note, as always, these are my views and opinions and do not reflect my employer, university, or affiliates. And finally, nothing I share on this podcast constitutes medical advice. Everything presented here is for educational purposes only. On today's episode of the podcast, I would like to do an AMA. And for those of you who are familiar with the world of podcasting or have their frequent podcasts that they listen to, AMA just stands for Ask Me Anything. These types of things are typically done live through social media. Um, I, of course, well, maybe not of course, you don't know me personally, but I do not have social media accounts and refuse to build any. Um, I will leave it there and I will let you <laughs> decide for yourself what you think my reasons might be for that. But um, but suffice it to say, I'm not a fan of social media. Um, in any event, there are several very high quality podcasts that I listen to that I would highly recommend, one of which is Dr. Peter Atia's Drive podcast. The Drive by Peter Atia, who is who was trained as a mathematician and then got his MD from Stanford and became a surgeon and now does uh, anti-aging gerontological science applied to sort of a longitudinal, comprehensive, almost primary care type of role. It's He's a very interesting man and scientist. Um, and I think in some ways very much resembles the way that I think about problems of health and disease, which is to say he takes a very logical, critical analysis and quantitative approach to problems of healthcare, um, both in terms of policy, but also in terms of pathophysiology. So I have great respect for Dr. Atia. Um, I would suggest that if you haven't already, that you go look at his podcast, The Drive. Um, interestingly, um, maybe fortuitously in some ways, if you go to my podcast on iTunes and search at the bottom for, you know, other people listen to, I, I think it's something to that effect. Um, his is like the first or second podcast there. So that if that tells you anything about the similarities, I think um, that's an interesting, interesting feature. <clears throat> um, but Dr. Atia does ask me anything episodes, and I think he does them very similarly. It's sort of a live question and answer segment. Um, I am not going to do that just by virtue of the fact that I am still a student. I am very, very busy with work and school and family, as I'm sure all of these other podcasters are as well. But I think for me, 
I think the best way for us to do this with the clinical appraisal podcast is to cull through the emails that we get from people and find the questions that are emailed. And I get emailed questions constantly. Often they're things that I can't answer because they're about specific individuals or, you know, an individual problem that I can't speak to or something that, you know, it's just not my place to respond to. Some of them are just people being very kind and sending their salutations. And I think that that I've always appreciated those and I try to respond to them as often as I can. But um, I frequently get questions that are of a very high caliber and that I've always liked. I wish that I could... Uh, I've always wanted to rather bring them up in the podcast and and have like a sort of question and answer type of of segment, and I think this will serve as that um, purpose going forward. So I'll probably do these little AMAs. They'll be br- <laughs> hopefully they'll be brief, unless the questions are absolutely fascinating and there's another deep dive that coincides with them. But generally speaking, I foresee these being like two, maybe three questions maybe a short 20-minute stint, and then I'll close it out until the next episode. We actually have a lot of episodes in the queue. Um, I say we. I'm obviously principally the one running clinical appraisal. I do have some people in my corner who are sort of in the background helping me, <laughs> helping me to find new articles that are interesting, helping me to sort of lay out the the groundwork for some of the episodes and um and things like that. Sometimes I have discussions prior to these with people to figure out how to sort of convey things the best way and I don't always do that. Um but it it's helpful to work through those things with people. In any event, I'll probably do this every few weeks. Um and if you have any questions to submit and don't typically email them, please feel free to email me. Especially if your question is succinct and it's related to the podcast in some way that's important, um, I am likely to read them and actually make some use of them. Even if I end up putting it in a queue for some length of time, because I have, you know, there's uh, several podcasts that I've been that have been backed up for me. Um, the community-based and user-centered design research uh, podcast episode is backed up now by a few weeks. I have a multicultural podcast episode coming out in terms of like multicultural methodology uh, as applied to healthcare research and healthcare policy in terms of um, how it might be important for nurses and nursing. Um, There are several interesting, I think, interesting episodes that are sort of in the queue, lined up and ready to go. So um, I will intersperse these as we go along. But if you have questions, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com and I will go through them. And I especially, like I said, if they're succinct, I will read them and try to make the best use of them that I can. Um, The two questions I have for you today, one is about excess deaths in uh, 2020 over 2019, which is research conducted in collaboration from Yale and Harvard. Um, and then another study on masking in terms of population um, risk reductions, relative risk reductions in hospitalization rates. And um, I will discuss those two today and then leave it there. 
I think these two questions were very interesting, and I personally had not seen these two papers yet, but clearly my listeners are paying close attention to the uh, preprint literature. These are both preprints. Um, a note on preprints beforehand, there are significant issues with peer review in science, and that's been, particularly in the psychological sciences, it's been noted for the last, say, five years. Um, I think it's also well known in the biomedical literature. There are a couple notable examples of researchers who've spent the last several years discussing issues like this. One example, one high profile example is a Dr. Unides from Stanford, who has famously written the paper, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False, which has got to be one of my favorite papers that's ever been written. And um, he discusses the pitfalls and tribulations of peer review in terms of its success in preventing trashy research from being published. Um, so, you know, people often malign preprints as being somehow non-scientific or, which is silly because they're actually scientific reports. I think what they mean is that they're not necessarily trustworthy yet. Um, but the implicit assumption that having a peer-reviewed paper naturally or inherently being trustworthy is sort of a misapprehension of what it means to truly understand the peer review process. Also, having been an ad hoc peer reviewer several times, I can tell you that it would be very easy for a peer reviewer to, quote, review while not paying close enough attention because truly reviewing an article it takes a lot of effort and researchers are often very busy. And, you know, I'm uh, a professional researcher in my, in my day job to say nothing of my interests in school. Um, and in clinical research, if you are reviewing anyone else's work, if you don't, especially because, you know, they try to get reviewers who are, who are well-versed in your area of expertise, but oftentimes, you know, it, there's still so many different silos of of niches of expertise in, in a given area. Um, you can break things down in an almost infinite array of different avenues such that it still is novel enough for you that you may not even understand what you're reading unless you read it several times over. So a lot of people don't read things multiple times. They don't pay close enough attention to the methods to be able to actually disentangle, you know, what are they trying to do? What exactly is their independent variable levels and what's their dependent variable, you know, what's their principal outcome, et cetera, et cetera. The point of that is just to say that a lot of these preprints have been of very high quality. And in fact, most of what we know about COVID-19 as a novel infectious disease, including its treatments, including uh, its effects on immunity and neutralizing antibody status and all sorts of other things have been garnered from preprint literature. So I will not disparage preprints, and I have kept up with them to the best of my ability, although it's interesting in the beginning of this pandemic, there were only about 80 papers on COVID-19, clearly, because after about a month, how many could there possibly be? 
And I was able to read all of them and know everything that could possibly have been understood about COVID-19 in the first like month, which is to say, comparative to now, like nothing. But after a few months, we had several thousand papers. And of course, you can't read that many papers and also have a life. Um, but I tried. I really desperately tried. <laughs> and then several months after that, we're getting closer toward you know the end of summer. And um, now there are well over 50,000 papers, and good luck reading all of those. Um, so, uh, And obviously, there are branches of different ways people are looking at this. They're looking at this from chemistry and molecular biology lenses and immunobiology lenses, but also from a medical and a nursing lens and a, psych- a psychological lens. So it's all very complex, but it's been an explosion of work that's changed the way that we understand the disease. And there's still so much that we do not know as a, as a, as a field, um, as a people, about this illness. But the preprint literature has driven this expansion in knowledge. It hasn't been the high-impact factor journals, uh, which I will refrain from naming on this episode for this reason. Um, they've been important, don't get me wrong. They've also allowed for preprints and um, printing ahead of pub on their high-quality journals as well for this very reason. Um, but you will not find me to be on the side of disparaging preprints per se. There have been some very poor preprints as well that have come out, don't get me wrong. Um, however, I think they're in the, ver- they're in the vast minority of uh, published preprints. So with that preamble aside, the first paper that I was sent, uh, and I should say that I, I sort of, I perused both of these briefly this morning. And so this is sort of an off the cuff episode, but, um, but it's not so much that I want to disentangle all of the methods that they've used, but really the questions that were asked were about two specific methods and then my overarching thoughts on the outcomes that were measured in the, the papers. So um, if you email me and you ask me to you know, provide thoughts on something and I decide to use your question for an episode of an AMA, for example, such as this one, what I will not do is use your name at all or any identifying information whatsoever, unless you specifically put in writing in your email to me that you are willing and able to allow me to use your name. And even then, I'll probably only use your first name. Um, I'm not in the business of outing anybody for any reason. So um, if you emailed me and you wanted to hear me say your name on, on the air, as it were, I would do that only if you email me and say, please feel free to use my name or something to that effect. Um, So for both of these, I will not be stating who wrote me these, um, but just suffice it to say that for the both of you, I very much appreciate these questions. I think these were very good questions and these were very interesting papers. Um, So the first one was a paper published through a collaboration between Yale's Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation and Harvard, I believe it was the School of Public Health, but I'm just speaking that from recollection, so I could be wrong. Um, 
Interestingly, I have a good friend who works in the Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation, or CORE, at Yale University's School of Medicine. Um, I can, I'm interested in reaching out to her because I don't know this biostatistician who worked particularly on this project, um, but my friend, of course, will have worked directly with her. And I'm interested in maybe getting some more, some more feedback on some of the details of how they're parsing out some of their data for this paper. But essentially what they did, this was a Faust et al. Um, Faust, I believe, is from Harvard. Uh, Faust might be from Yale. And I think maybe the second author is from Harvard. I forget. Um, in any case, like I said, I just perused this paper this morning. The, what they did is they looked at total mortality from 2019 from all causes in a population of people aged 25 to 44 years of age. And all-cause mortality has always been sort of a an issue for me from a, a measurement standpoint because all-causes, of course, means everything, anything. But it's so ambiguous. And, um, and it also is a very low-resolution look at what might be happening to a population or the population, depending on how you parse out the data. And, you know, I really like more fine-grained, detailed analyses of specific populations with specific problems and mortality from specific causes. But there are cases where total mortality, total all-cause mortality actually matters, is a very important measure. And this is one example of the importance of this all-cause mortality measure, which is to say when you look at excess deaths from year to year. So what Faust et al. did is they looked at the total deaths from the previous year, 2019, in 25 to 44-year-olds from all causes, and then they looked at excess deaths from 2020 in the same population to compare the two years. And what they found, of course is a heightened risk of death from all-cause mortality in 2020 by a pretty significant margin. I think it was like 4,025 extra deaths or something above 4,000 extra deaths, which is quite a lot. Um, Now, if you imagine, you know, what's 4,000 out of the 85 million 25 to 44-year-olds that are in the United States population. It's really like a 0.00003 or something to, you know, it's something on that order of magnitude. And so it's a very small, small, small number. But in the 25 to 44-year-old population, your risk of dying from anything, generally speaking, is like 0.00007% or something to that. I mean, it's very small. Um, And if you look at the reasons for people's premature mortality in this age range, because this is clearly, I mean, the age bracket they've given here is 25 to 44. Uh, There's a big difference between a 25 and a 35-year-old and another very big difference between a 35 and a 45-year-old. So the differences between a 25 and a 45-year-old are enormous. Let's not pretend that that's not the case, right? There are step function changes in age-related illness and also all-cause mortality between, I mean, you could just look at five-year gaps, but the, the 
differences in mortality between 25-year-olds and 45-year-olds is profound. So this particular bracket is sort of an odd one. Um, but they're trying to capture, I mean, to give them credit, they're trying to capture all of the people in this category because these are the people who are considered younger individuals in terms of COVID-19 cases, but also, um, you know, they're above that sort of youth and young adult and adolescent category that is in the lowest risk bracket. There is, of course, a very steep leftward skew in terms of risk of mortality from COVID-19 throughout the ages with people over the age of 79 representing the greatest risk um, in terms of overall mortality and morbidity from this infection. Um, However, the point is that there is a very big difference between a 25-year-old and a 44-year-old, but they want to capture everyone in this con- this cohort of quote young and health young and otherwise healthy. When you look at the data uh, from any given year, the CDC has collected these uh, mortality statistics and they collate them in a very helpful way. And you can actually search based on functions related to very specific ages. You can look at gender. You can look at all sorts of pretty fascinating things. You can break things down into um, non-infectious, non-communicable diseases. It's uh, pretty interesting. And this is available publicly on their website, um, cdc.gov. Now, um, if you look at the the causes of all-cause mortality, so to speak, <laughs> for this age range, this age bracket, what you find is that unintentional poisonings. And so in in a lot of ways, those are overdoses, particularly things like opioid overdoses, um, tend to represent the highest risk of accidental all-cause mortality in the 25 to 44-year-old age range in 2019. And some people will do as they'll average between the last five years. And I don't think they did that for this study. I'd be interested in asking why they didn't take an average um, as opposed to just using 2019. But they really were very interested in comparing and contrasting 2019 with 2020 for obvious reasons. Um, there are So they, they take this group of people, they look at 2019 data where most people in this age bracket died accidentally by overdoses and unintentional poisonings. And this year we have a, you know, four... Um, a 4,000-person, roughly, increase in excess deaths. Excess deaths are an interesting measure because they are low resolution, right? This is the question that I was asked. So, and I realize I didn't actually read the email, but suffice it to say, the, the question in this individual's email was about using the metric of excess deaths here. Because the conclusion of this paper is that um, COVID-19 represents the most important mode of excess of deaths in the 25 to 44-year-old age bracket this year. Now, the first thing I would like to say about that is that excess deaths can be useful in terms of telling you just on a very uh, rough basis what one given year looks like for a population over the other. 
But what they're trying to do with this measure for this paper is they're trying to reduce that excess death rate to one cause. That, I think, is the problem that my listener is coming up against in their review of the paper. Now, I'm not going to say whether or not I agree or disagree because I think it's a rabbit hole. But what I will do is I'll, I'll give you some understanding of my perspective on what some of the challenges in this area might, in fact, be. Um, using excess deaths here to specify COVID-19 deaths as being the only thing that's changed from 2020 to 2019, you have to realize that COVID-19 is a big factor. It might be it's the biggest factor. I agree with them on that. Um, what I would not say, of course, is that um, COVID-19, like the virus that causes COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, that that in particular is the driving singular cause for all of those excess deaths because there are COVID-19 related phenomena that are causing excess deaths as well. Now, we know, for example, that anxiety, depression, and suicidality have increased tremendously over the last eight months as a function of COVID-19 related concerns that could be related, for example, to the lockdown. Um, we know that there are uh, child and female physical and sexual abuse patterns that have spiked in a very unfortunate pattern since the beginning of the pandemic uh, as a function, partly, uh, we believe, as people are forced to remain with their abusers. Um, so there, the statistics on, for example, uh, suicide attempts have gone up. The statistics on individuals who have actually sought out treatment for their, um, or who've been able to seek out treatment for, you know, their, um, their previous cancer diagnosis, or, you know, if people are having um, chest pain in their home, but they're terrified to go to an emergency department to take care of their chest pain, because they believe that they'll get COVID-19 and they're bound to die from COVID-19 when from a probabilistic standpoint, if you're say a 52 year old uh, Caucasian male and you have, you have a significant imminent risk of myocardial infarction, your risk of dying from that particular heart attack and your risk of dying from COVID-19, there's no comparison whatsoever you are much more likely to die from that heart attack than you are to die from the COVID-19 infection. Now, that's not to say that it's not important and that you shouldn't be concerned. All that it's just to say is that people are staying home and they're not seeking the care they deserve or that they need. And so people are, are really dealing with a host of really problematic things that are spiking mortality this year that are very different from last year. So you might say they're COVID-19 related, but you may not say that they're COVID-19 specific in terms of specificity being related to, well, in this case, I suppose we could say sensitivity, um, being related to the virus itself. But um, there, are, there are factors related to our behavior about the virus that impact human life and mortality, as we all clearly know from the last nine months of this 
um, catastrophe. So the other thing that this individual mentions, and I think is an important point, is that you know, if you look at the, the total number of excess deaths, um, we're looking at a very tiny, tiny, tiny minority of the population of people between 25 and 44 years of age. This, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, the CDC, just released official infection fatality ratios, IFRs, which is different than a case fatality ratio. Case fatality is essentially all of those individuals who have the infection and show up for treatment who happen to have uh, died at the end of that, um, that treatment path. The infection fatality ratio, the denominator for that is different. It's everyone who has been infected ever. And the issue with the infection fatality ratio is that there's been a host of research over the last several months trying to figure out what that might be and using seroprevalence studies to be able to to determine this. And it's actually quite difficult to figure that out because there are some issues with the seroprevalence data. Um, On the whole, it might be reasonably accurate averaged across all the studies and there might be you know in some cases three and a half to five percent excuse me (laughs) three and a half to five times more um, cases of people who've been infected and have cleared the virus and have antibodies than we believe but so you know but there's a lot of variance in those data and it's hard to know what to believe but the CDC has recently called all of those data and pulled an interesting paper to be able to do that. And they have um, made some very clear-cut statements on their website from the recent MMWR uh, report that they provided to the public and to uh, us as researchers and healthcare providers about what they believe the true IFRs to be in these age brackets and from zero to 19 years old, it's, you know, uh, I'm not looking at them right now, but it's like 30. Well, forgive me because I don't, I don't want anybody to, um, to reference this episode as being a, uh, a talking point for either, you know, political party. So let me just not tell you, um, my takeaway. What I want you to do is look at the CDC website for their recent IFRs because they have them posted publicly and everyone can go look at them. Suffice it to say, the IFRs for individuals between 0 and 20 is quite low. Um, Between 20 and 40 is quite low. Um, And it starts to creep up a little bit as we go along. And then there's an exponential increase as you get past uh, 65, 70, and uh, and above. So... um, as always, it's more complicated than people make it out to seem. But part of the question here is, you know, how can we make this claim that, oh gosh, young people 25 to 44 years old are imminently at risk of dying from COVID-19 compared to anything else? Meanwhile, the CDC says that their IFR is X, you know, very low number, well below 0.1%. So, that I think is a valid point, um, and I think it's something we should remind ourselves that your risk of dying from anything in this age bracket is extraordinarily low. Um, and then, of course, this on top of it does increase 
your risk, but it does not increase your risk to the point that people who are 27 years old should be concerned that they're going to die from the virus because your actual risk of surviving the virus is greater than 99.x percent as, and I'll let you figure out what that is through the CDC information as a, a 27, 28, 29, 30 year old, for example. So in conclusion, as it were, I think the big takeaway from that paper, and it was a very interesting, and I think it's going to be a very useful paper going forward. I think it's the the overall message that they're trying to take away is people 25 to 44 are at imminent risk. This is the highest risk posed now um, in the new year, 2020. It's it's the thing that kills 25 to 44-year-olds. In a way, I don't think that they're necessarily wrong, but I think that they're prematurely associating that with the virus. And I think that it actually may have a lot more to do with other aspects of the, the disease and the people's behavior toward the disease. But the overarching point I'm making is that excess deaths are an important but low-resolution metric. And as you look for more fine-grained causal mediators of those, those effects that you're seeing um, on the dependent variable, which in this case is deaths, I think that you come away with a, a different picture than what they're trying to draw here. Um, so that is, is still an important uh, finding. Let me just make that quite clear. Moving on. There was another study that was sent to me via email by another listener who I've actually spoken with before and has sent me some very interesting things. And I, um, I won't say who they are, but I will say that they have a history of working in public health research. And um, I have a respect for their, their review of the, the literature. And so they sent me this paper, and it was um, – I can't remember if she was the corresponding author, the first author, or if she was the anchor author. Um, in any case, this was a study funded by Dr. Monica Gandhi, and I believe Monica is at UCSF. It's either UCSF or Stanford. Um, forgive me, I can't remember precisely which one. But Dr. Gandhi is uh, an infectious disease physician and a an HIV specialist in particular. And she has been, I think, a light in this area. I think she's a very intelligent woman. She's a very hardworking scientist, uh, clinical investigator. And she really has taken her hypotheses on why masking is helping. Um, to new levels of understanding, I, I think has presented it to the public and to other scientists in a way that's been really transformative of our understanding of why this might be uh, particularly helpful. Um, I won't get into some of them because they're for a, a, a different and longer episode of the podcast, but some of her hypotheses revolve around, um, in a way, sort of micro micro inoculations of the virus and small exposures, um, while also mitigating the large exposures of droplets and things like that um, as a function of, of wearing your mask in public. But she's also been a light 
of reason in terms of understanding that in something like an economic meltdown and depression, which will last us the next several years, um, there are going to be many, many lives lost directly from that as well. But we have to maintain our public's health and the public health interest all the while, while we contend with these things. And so there's a very delicate balancing act that we're trying to accommodate here. And she has argued, I think, convincingly, um, although not definitively, that masking plays a very important role in allowing people to be able to do more in society and and keep themselves safe simultaneously, even people in a higher risk bracket, um, supposing that they feel comfortable enough to do things like go, say, go to the grocery store or whatever the case is, with their mask on, of course. That's her point. Um, so interestingly... Um, this individual sent me this paper. They sent me their conclusions, and they were um, they were right to draw some of them. And I think that um, I mean, perhaps all of the the conclusions they drew, um, I I would stand behind it in some way. Um, but they were interested in how important I thought this paper's results were. So Dr. Gandhi's paper essentially showed that there was an average of a 7% reduction in hospitalizations from COVID-19 through masking. Um, and the, the big question that this person had for me is that they used a differences in differences approach um, to analyzing their data, their regression data. What on earth is differences in differences, they asked, um, because a differences in differences study or really that analysis is more of an econometric and social science analysis. It's not typically something that we do in public health, which does a lot of sensitivity and specificity work. It does a lot of, you know, biostatistical relationships and um, correlations and different types of regression. But some of the more complicated regression-related tangential approaches to analysis, like differences and differences, are used at the social, psychological, and social science level because those problems are so difficult to dis- disentangle. You know, it's already difficult enough if you put together a randomized trial of some, say, pharmacotherapeutic and the endpoint being, you know, s- some, let's say it's a, a chemotherapeutic drug and your outcome is breast cancer. It's difficult enough to run an RCT on that problem and disentangle exactly whether your independent variable had the effect you thought it had on the dependent variables, even if you properly randomized, say, patients, even if it was placebo-controlled. Being able to get at that can be very difficult. It's much harder with econometric data, it's much harder with social scientific data, with psychological data, because the the things that factor in as potentially confounding variables is unbelievably enormous. It's, It's potentially infinite. I would say it is infinite in some ways. So, Um, People in public health who are used to evaluating RCTs and, you know, pretty uh, 
nominal observational studies that are, I mean, they're not simple, but they're simpler. And I think that uh, differences and differences is sort of a, a weird approach to take, but it makes sense for something like COVID-19 where it would be unethical to randomize patients or persons to, you know, you guys get to wear masks and you people don't get to wear masks. That would just be an unethical, immoral way to proceed. So what you can do, though, with a differences and differences approach is you take observational data as a kind of natural experiment. And we do have a natural experiment of sorts occurring within the coronavirus pandemic, obviously. And what you can do statistically is you can take the differential average rates of change between what you can assign as a control pattern and a treatment arm, and you can determine through this uh, differential change whether over time you can associate the uh, changes due to the independent variable as compared to changes from the control variable on the dependent variable or the outcome. And this can be an important way to find sort of a more causal mediation or moderation of your outcome variable of interest. And I mean, depending on certain factors, uh, this can, it can still pose some problems like regression to the mean is always a problem. Sometimes people omit certain variables and there can be confounding, but that's true in all observational research. So it's, it's certainly not without its challenges, but it gives you more robust results. And as I mentioned before, Dr. Gandhi's results demonstrate, um, I think the confidence interval was from about 4% reduction to about 11% reduction, and 11% would be enormous. Um, it doesn't sound enormous, but um, I'm going to give you an example of why this is important right now. So the average reduction was about 7%, a 7% reduction in hospitalizations, mind you. So this is, I'm just going to make up a number. Um, but given that I've seen, you know, I, I pay very close attention to daily change statistics in COVID-19 in my state and, and the adjacent state. So I'm going to pick an adjacent state. I'm not going to say which one. Um, we have on average over the last week, maybe 14 hospitalizations a day over 30 days, over a month. That is about, um, well, excuse me. If we average that across the country, 14 um, across 50 states, that's about 700 people per day hospitalized. That's a lot. Over a month, we're talking about tens of thousands of people across all 50 states hospitalized in a month. Now, we only have uh, – we have less than a million hospital beds in this country. And we're not speaking of ICU beds per se. We're just thinking of um, – of hospital beds per se. I think there's like 960,000 hospital beds in the United States total, which is a lot under normal circumstances. Um, imagine that that 700 people per day across 30 days, you got tens of thousands of people hospitalized. If 7% of them are, if there's a reduction of 7% across that total number of people, you get 1,500 beds each month. 
that are not taken up by people who would have otherwise been hospitalized. 1,500 beds. That's enormous. Now, obviously, you can average that across the year, and you can see there are thousands and thousands of people who would otherwise be hospitalized who will be potentially saved from hospitalization simply as a function of wearing their masks. Monica Gandhi has made some very good points about reminding healthcare providers especially that we don't malign, say, HIV sufferers for deciding that they're not going to wear condoms, for example. And we don't, you know, malign smokers for continuing to smoke. We we try to convince people of the things that they ought to do for their health and for the health of the public, but we don't malign people for doing these things. And importantly, these data they're accounting a margin of error, accounting for a margin of error. So there's some standard error that is allowable here to still gain that 7% reduction. And that 7% is important, but it does not mean that 100% of people... So like if you have somebody who has significant PTSD coupled with uh, their anxiety about having something on their face, uh, coupling that with... Um, say, an asthma. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to make excuses for people to not wear masks. It's, it's a very simple thing to do that is apparently quite helpful for the population health. My point is to say that um, that 7% does not rely on 100% adherence or compliance. Um, but if the vast majority comply with a masking, um, with masking, we might save thousands upon thousands of people from being hospitalized from this pandemic. So um, those both were very interesting papers. The Just to recap briefly before I close this out, one, uh, the first question was essentially what's the utility of excess deaths if we want to know precisely the causes of the reasons for that excess death rate? Uh, in 2020 versus 2019? I think that was a good question. I hope I provided some insights into what I think the answers might be to that particular question, not with respect to the conclusions that were drawn by these authors so much, but what what you cannot assume based on the excess death rate alone as a low-resolution res- metric about specific causes. And the second was on Dr. Monica Gandhi's study on masking and um, what I thought of the importance of that 7% was and about the differences and differences approach. Um, And so just again, quickly recapping, differences and differences is a statistical way to control for a control versus an, quote, treatment effect in an observational study, treating it like a natural experiment. And... Um, they showed in this paper that there was about an average of 7% reduction in hospitalizations as a function of masking alone. And it was uh, pretty well done. As I said, I only perused it. I didn't do a deep, deep dive. So I'm sure that some of you may know much more about this particular study than I do. Um, But what I would say to her, to their question about um, what is the importance of that 7%, um, it would save potentially, if this data are correct, if these results are robust, it would save thousands upon thousands of hospital beds from COVID-19 sufferers each 
month, um, each quarter, let's say, and certainly at the end of the year. Thank you for listening to Clinical Appraisal and to this first AMA episode. If you really enjoyed this episode, please rate it five stars on iTunes and share this channel with your friends in healthcare. If you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com or visit my website about.me slash Ian Lane. Finally, I do this show because it helps me to learn and not because I like to pretend to be the expert on these topics. My objective is simply to grow as a clinician and a researcher and to promote this content for other like-minded people. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again next time.